If you're looking for a home mortgage, look no further than Premise Mortgage. The Premise process is simpler, faster, and more convenient than the competition because they're cutting-edge technology. Plus, Premise is an independent company, yet is backed by a bank. Therefore, they can offer all kinds of products for clients with various needs and deliver an awesome customer experience. Premise Mortgage is licensed in 43 states and counting. Contact Richie Love today at 704-607-1497. That's 704-607-1497. Matt Doherty, the 67 sophomore from East Meadow, New York. Leadership is learned. A starter on Coach Dean Smith's legendary 1982 Tar Heels National Championship team with Michael Jordan. Jordan comes down with a rebound. There's it away to Darty. Darty going in against Floyd. Floyd up is good. Leadership is earned. Head coach at the University of North Carolina and the University of Notre Dame. You notice Matt Doherty. He is up working every second of this ballgame. Leadership is taught. Public speaker, author, and executive coach. And leadership does not require a title. This is the Rebound Podcast with Coach Matt Doherty. Danny Morrison is the executive director of the Charlotte Sports Foundation, along with being the professor of practice at the University of South Carolina Department of Sport and Entertainment, former athletic director at Wofford College, played basketball at Wofford College, and was the commissioner of the Southern Conference before taking on the AD's position at TCU. After that, He was tabbed president of the Carolina Panthers and helped lead them to the Super Bowl in 2016. Uh, Danny, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, Tell tell us about your leadership philosophy. You've been in the leadership roles since you were pretty young. And when how old were you when you first became a leader? Let's say the you know, your first leadership job maybe is the commissioner of the Southern Conference. Well, I guess the first leadership job would be um, coaching basketball. So I went to Williams High School as a JV coach in 1975, and I was named the head coach the following year, 1976. So I wasn't a lot older than the players. I was 22 head coach at a really good high school. I was really fortunate to be there. Uh, with great people. It was a great experience for me. And then uh, from there, I uh, went to Elon in 1980 as an assistant coach. And back then, you did a little bit of everything. I was assistant basketball coach, head tennis coach, taught in the math department, and also the assistant AD. And then when I went to Wofford as the AD, I was 31. Uh, I've been so lucky over the course of my career to have so many superb bosses. I I hear people tell horror stories about um, some of the bosses they've had. I've not I've not only had great bosses, I've had exceptional bosses. Everyone was off the charts. They were great to work with, high integrity, um, wanted you to uh, be aggressive. If you made some mistakes, so be it. Punt, we'll try something else. So I've been really fortunate over my years. Uh, to have to work with some ex- exceptional people. And it started that very first year in high school and went all the way through the Carolina Panthers. And, of course, I'm working with some great leaders in my teaching at the University of South Carolina. And we've got uh, an amazing board of directors with the Charlotte Sports Foundation. So my leadership philosophy 
actually is pretty simple. Not It's really not complicated. I think the best definition of leadership that I've ever heard is one simple statement. Leaders get results. And what I like about that is it means it comes in all shapes and sizes. People have different philosophies. And the key to me is that you have to be who you are and learn from a lot of other people and then take what you learn and apply it to your own situation. So the older I've gotten, the simpler it's become for me. Uh, I personally like to hire really talented people that have great values, high expectations, integrity, do what they say they're going to do, um, get along with people. I think harmony is really, really important. They have to be smart enough to connect the dots, but they don't have to be brilliant. And in that kind of environment, people that have their own high expectations already put enough pressure on themselves. So the way I look at things is I try to take pressure off of people. Uh, I guess from my own growing up and from everything, I have a tendency to put more pressure on myself than anybody else does. So if you're working with people, why would you want to put more pressure on them? So that's that's not my philosophy. I want them to take risk. I want them to, I really believe risk and progress are complementary variables. Uh, want them to step out. And if you make some mistakes, no problem. We'll figure it out and keep moving forward. And fortunately, over my career, I had all different styles of leaders, but they were consistent. The bosses that I had were consistent in encouraging, helping you do better. If you made some mistakes, not a problem. Just don't keep making the same mistakes. Learn from it. So leaders get results, come in all states, all sizes, all styles. I personally prefer uh, a leadership style where People work together. They're collaborative. Um, give people uh, the freedom to do their jobs, but also be there to try to support and help them. Danny, you, you unpacked a lot. We have a lot to unpack there. Wow. Um, 31 years old, AD at Wofford College. And, and let me go back. Burlington High School is Burlington, North Carolina, uh, the home of Elon, what is now university. Um, 31 years old as an athletic director. Um, my gosh. Um, what was that like um, uh, at 31 years old? You're probably leading people that are older than you, right? Uh, head coaches that might have been older than you, and you've got to tell them, um, what to do and, and tell them no sometimes. How, how did you wear that, if you will, jacket? I talk about sometimes wearing a jacket. Like you got to put on a jacket uh, um, as a leader. And even though you're maybe not fully comfortable at 31 years old, you have to put on this jacket, get, get comfortable with it. Um, what was that like for a young man at 31 years old? Well, we had a great president, a guy named Joe Lassane, who was named president at Wofford at age 33, actually took over at 34. He was there for some 28 years, uh, did an incredible job, had a chance to go to what some would perceive as bigger, better. But he loved uh, the college. He 
was able to be there 28 years. You think about that as a college president. So you plant the seeds, you see them germinate, you see it grow, and his tenure there um, really is, is, is unparalleled. So I go there at 31, and I was really on a coaching background at the time. I had the chance um, actually to go there as either the basketball coach or the AD, and I was really on a coaching track. But I decided to go the AD route. It worked out great for Wofford because we ended up getting a better coach, <laughs> guy named Richard Johnson, who's still Richard there. Richard Johnson was a good coach. I coached against Richard as an assistant when I was at Davidson for Bob McKillop. Yeah, yeah, he 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 was a good coach. I remember his his. Uh, I think he had a really good zone offense, and uh, he was just he was he was excellent and had a great assistance. And as you remember, Mike Young, an assistant for some 15 years there. And then Mike became the head coach and now is doing a wonderful job at uh, Virginia Tech. John Shulman was one of his assistants as well. And the, the list goes on and on. But uh, it was fun. And in, in, in some respects, Matt, we, we all grew up together. So we go there. Uh, I'm 31 it's not a really large staff at that time. Coaches also did other administrative uh, jobs at small colleges. We were NAI at the time. Most of the, I had a chance to really hire most of the people at an early age. We had great continuity, which I think is one of the biggest assets in organization. It gets underrated uh, as long as people are trying to keep getting better. But we grew up together, and we moved it from uh, NAIA to NCAA to Division Two to Division One, one AA in football, and then the Southern Conference. We hit on an amazing football coach who was there for thirty years. No better in America. His reputation speaks for itself. And Mike Ayers. So it was just a good time to be there. We were growing. We were learning. We were in an environment where um, there's, a, there's a lot of value. People don't give enough credit to some of the smaller colleges. You can do a lot of things there, and any mistakes you make are not magnified. You, uh, uh, and we had a nurturing environment. Uh, we didn't have a lot of money, but we could be creative so we could try things. And we made some really bold moves now. Uh, at the time when we moved to NCAA and then Division Two and Division One Southern Conference, people were saying, well, how can this little bitty um, small college compete? And we competed well because we had great harmony. People worked well together. Uh, we had continuity. It was, uh, it was a, a fun time. You were, how, how long were you there and what was your next stop? I was, the, I was the AD there for 12 years and as we made all those moves. And then I went into a role that was really beneficial for me. Uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but the president uh, asked me to uh, move into a senior vice president role. And there was a senior vice president who was also the academic dean who was great. And so I handled most of the non-academic things at the college. So it gave me a, a different perspective, uh, not only athletics, but every other facet of the college. And I think that really helped me 
uh, when I moved into my next role as the commissioner of the Southern Conference. So you go from the athletic director and the vice president role at Wofford into the commissioner of the Southern Conference. So now you've got to manage the Southern Conference. Like you've got to manage Wofford, right? Um, I was talking about this the other day and Dean Smith, who, you know, most of the audience would know from uh, North Carolina, legendary coach. I remember him telling me that when John Swafford left North Carolina as the athletic director, become the commissioner, a lot of people would insinuate that, oh, um, he's going to give North Carolina favoritism with scheduling and tickets and hotels at the ACC tournament. And, um, and coach Smith was like, no, 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 no. Human nature is he's going to be tougher on North Carolina. So, um, how is that managing now Wofford and this president who really gave you favor for so many years and you had all these relationships and now you got to get into a meeting with them and talk about, no, you, 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 we can't schedule you that, you know, we can't give you that. We, how, how did you say no to Wofford when you became the commissioner? Well, first of all, let me say this about Dean Smith. Dean Smith had great perspective on so many things. Uh, I was such an admirer of him. I would go to North Carolina and watch practices uh, I read all of his books, went to many of his clinics. I just loved his philosophy and the way that he did things. Uh, I think when you go into a role like you just described from a conference standpoint, the main thing is to be fair. And if you think about conferences, they're complex. Uh, they're really flawed in how you would organize. Let's take at the time there were 12 Southern Conference schools and if you, uh, we really were a microcosm of higher ed in America. We had large, small, public, private, military. So you have 12 teams that you're asked that, that compete very passionately against one another, but you're asking them to also cooperate under the Southern Conference umbrella. So you have that tension between cooperation and competition. And likewise, you're also trying to operate a conference efficiently and trying to build community at the same time. So you have that tension. And the truth of the matter is conferences are all held together by one thing, and it's called trust. And you cannot lose that trust. And so uh, I think you're point about Dean Smith and the perspective, you certainly aren't going to be more favorable and you try to be fair and make sure you're not being disfavorable. Right. Uh, Overcompensate. You talked about taking risks. How do you encourage risk taking, but yet give parameters, right? Do you give parameters like, okay, you have this budget of whatever, you can do whatever you want within that budget. Um, You know, how do you manage risk taking? Because some people, obviously everyone's different, right? So somebody who's a little bit of a maverick might say, oh, okay, Danny's telling me to go take chances and risks and he might, you know, bet the farm and somebody else is, needs more nudging. How do you manage um, and, and mitigate risk while encouraging risk taking? Well, so much of uh, organizations is also about communication. I never look at myself as managing people. I, I really don't like that term. I like the term of working with people. So in athletic departments and working with coaches, I never 
stuck my nose in to who they it's their job to do the recruiting x and o's and so forth i didn't get into that now i was interested in it um and i certainly like to learn what style of play our coaches were uh using and philosophy behind it it was fascinating um both Richard Johnson on the men's basketball side when I was at Wofford and also Mike Ayers on the football side, they understood that we weren't going to have the same kind of resources that other people had. So our style had to be reflective. And so you had Mike Ayers running a, the triple option and doing a lot of creative things with it and, um, you know, shortening the game. Richard Johnson on the basketball side was doing a lot of motion offense and multiple defenses and so forth. So what I loved about that is I loved their philosophies of what they were doing. They had a philosophy. It wasn't a grab a play uh, kind of style. It was a macro style of looking at the whole season. What would we need to be doing to get through the season, how are we going to be taking uh, an intake calculated risk? So uh, Mike Ayers, for instance, would go for it on fourth down a lot. It, well, his theory was we we make the fourth downs, we keep the ball longer, we keep our defense off the field. So there were there was there was very good logic to the way their styles. And when people are taking, I'm not saying stupid risk, but you got to have people um, willing to step out. If not, you're going to be playing it close to the vest. Mm-hmm. And I guarantee you one way you won't take risk is if your boss cuts your knees out from under you if something doesn't work out. You That's can right. guarantee you you won't be taking risk. And as a result, you play it safe to the vest and you miss a lot of opportunities to move your organization forward. So you were at the, uh, as commissioner of the Southern Conference, next step, athletic director at TCU. Why, why that move? Uh, as much as I learned from the conference setting, and I will say this, it's a different world when you go to a game and you're not pulling for anybody. I'd never been in that experience before. <laughs> and as a commissioner. You had to be aggressively neutral, right? Yeah. And when you go to those games, what you're really wanting is well-officiated, well run, a great experience for both teams, all those. Uh, I did find out if you take the emotion out of officiating, they, they're they better than we think they are a lot of times. That's right. And I, I found that out. Uh, it was it was really a, a great learning experience for me, but I did miss the competition. So to have the opportunity to go to TCU, we absolutely loved it there. Again, blessed with a great chancellor who's still there. I think he's the best in America. Uh, What he's done at TCU over the last 20 years is uh, actually amazing what's Mm -hmm. what's happened with TCU. Mm -hmm. But I did miss the competition. It's a great school, uh, great chancellor. Fort Worth is a wonderful place. Texas people – uh, wrap their arms around you. They want you to love Texas as much as they love it. So it's easy to move into. Oil and gas was good there when we were there. So uh, when oil and gas is good in Texas, most everything's pretty good. We were doing well. We had a great football coach in uh, 
uh, Gary Patterson. So we were winning. We were nationally ranked. I would likely still be there. We absolutely loved it. They treated us like gold. It was a fun. We were doing a lot of things. Uh, we were taking some chances, embarked on the stadium renovation, uh, and we did some things there that people would say were very aggressive in working to make that stadium the Camden Yards of college football was really our thing. You, you touch again, you go back to risks and aggressiveness. What what in particular in the renovation of the football stadium, when you say being aggressive, give, give me an example. Give, a, give us an example of that. Well, this would probably be described as pretty aggressive. As we were working through what we called our founder suites, where you would have six really high premium suites with also a club behind it. So you'd not only have your six suites, but you'd have a club area behind them. We decided that we would uh, do those for $15 million each, $90 million. And Chris Del Conte followed me there. And we had uh, that was the plan to do those at $15 million each, $3 million a year for five years. That came to fruition. Most people will say those are probably the best suites in all of sports. Wow. So that'd be called aggressive. We had a wonderful architect, a guy named Brian Truby, who had done Lucas Oil Stadium, had done the Cowboy Stadium, and he got really excited about this Camden Yards of college football and doing some some different kind of things. So you're you're at TCU um, and you thought you'd probably be there forever, as you alluded to. And then Mr. Richardson comes calling. Correct. And you go to the Panthers? Yeah, I had really never thought about pro football. Um, and I get a call from Mr. Richardson in uh, a two, uh, uh, fall of 2009 and mm-hmm. uh, opportunity to go to the Carolina Panthers. It was a great experience, even though I'd never even thought about the pros. Some, Excuse me, just to give some background, you knew Mr. Richardson because he was an All-American football player at Wofford College, um, I'm assuming. And, and that's so there was a relationship there, right? So it, 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 it's not like out of the blue. He had a relationship with you, correct? We, we, had, a, we had a really good relationship. The call was still out of the blue because of well, yeah. thinking about <laughs> NFL. But actually, the relationship started my freshman year at Wofford. Uh, we were the only kids on campus during the Thanksgiving holidays. And Mr. Richardson and his family wanted us to have a family experience. Now, think about that. I guess he was 35 or so at the time and inviting these rogue basketball players over to his house for Thanksgiving dinners because he cared. Mm-hmm. Uh, that made a special impression on me. I mean, I didn't really know him uh, during my college years. He probably came to a couple of games a year, but he was working all the time. But mm-hmm. when I went back as AD in 1985, he was on the board. So I uh, worked with him from a board standpoint. But what I really did was admire his company, Spartan Foods. They had started with one Hardee's. Uh, he and his former quarterback, Charlie Bradshaw, started with the first franchisee of Hardee's and grew that company. And they were on the New York Stock Exchange before they were 40. Wow. And I just admired the company. It was interesting to me how many people wanted to work at that company. 
And that's not like a, uh, working at the NFL where it has some sex appeal to it. At the time, you were working in a hamburger yep. restaurant. Just the way they ran the organization and a lot of uh, people that were supportive of our program at Wofford also worked there. So I really had a lot of insights to that company and they, they were great at what they did. So you're at TCU, you get a call uh, from Mr. Richardson. The thing that I came to realize, not until probably 10 or so years ago, when I asked somebody about pro sports and working with pro organizations is uh, they said, you know, pro organizations are really family run businesses. And I think about that now and you look at Mr. Richardson and his sons, John, who I was in school with at North Carolina, who passed away. Uh, Mark, who was a contemporary of mine, but went to Clemson. And then, um, you know, the, the Hornets with Michael Jordan had his brothers and, you know, kids working. And so you look at the, the, these franchises and they really are family run businesses. And yet you come from, you know, technically the outside, although you have a relationship, what's that like getting introduced, put in as the president of the organization and answering to Mr. Richardson, but having family members, sons, and I'm assuming, I don't know if you had any daughters, but family members around you, uh, that that's always an interesting dynamic as I'm an executive coach and I see it happening all the time. Well, I never really saw it, uh, I never perceived of it as being a family-owned business. Mr. Richardson, having come out of the corporate world and it, uh, again, taken from the first franchisee of Hardee's to the New York Stock Exchange by the time he was 40, all of those business principles were in play uh, at the, at our organization, the Carolina Panthers. And so uh, while it uh, certainly had uh, family that were involved and, uh, as you mentioned, uh, high regard and high respect for both John and Mark and daughter Ashley, wonderful people, Mrs. Richardson. And, but it was, uh, it was run, it was, it was, it was run like he would be running uh, Spartan Foods back in the day. He had great people in the organization. He had five pillars that he was passionate about, hard work, harmony, teamwork, listen, and respect. Those were really the five pillars of the organization. Can you repeat those again, please? Hard work, harmony, teamwork, listen, and respect. So those were the pillars. One of the great things about him is he knew that the people that really made things go were the people on the front lines. So at Hardy's, uh, that per- person working the cash register, the biscuit maker, he really understood operations superbly. In our organization at the Panthers, nobody ever, there was great respect for the groundskeeper, the great respect for the people working in the food area, great respect for the people working on making sure that the stadium is operating well. And I always loved that about him. In fact, uh, he would take your normal organizational pyramid, and which he hated anyway, by the mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. But if you ever saw one, he'd flip it and, I say, love it. and say, you got it. You got it all wrong. 
mm-hmm. the people in the leadership positions are there to support all those people that are doing the heavy lifting and the heavy work. I, I call it flipping the org chart. You know, the CEO is supporting his senior leadership team. They're supporting their middle managers who are supporting the frontline workers. Uh, that's by definition to me, servant leadership. And uh, yeah, that that is really, I'm getting goosebumps as you talk about that. Uh, you, you mentioned the five pillars. And to me, uh, I wanted to ask, you know, you said hard work, harmony, teamwork, listen, respect, What's the difference between harmony and teamwork? He used to have teamwork, uh, number one, mm-hmm. uh, when he would have his pillars. Mm-hmm. But he flipped it to the third because the reality is you can't have teamwork if people aren't working hard and they don't get along and have harmony. Mm-hmm. And I love that teamwork uh, aspect. Uh, I know you've heard Jerry West say it yourself. But Jerry West, uh, my understanding, before he would draft somebody or before he would trade for somebody, would ask the question, would I want to play with that person or will that person be a great teammate? That's it right. doesn't mean they're choir boys, uh, but it means you got to be a great teammate. And they're not there are no no championship teams without great teamwork, as you know, better than anybody. So I love core values and pillars. And what are yours um, now as the executive director of the Charlotte Sports Foundation? I would say mine would be very similar to that. Um, I I subscribe to all five of those. I just, I believe teamwork, I like continuity. As long as people are getting better, continuity Mm -hmm. with people getting lazy and comfortable is not good. Then you got you create issues. But I love those core values of hard work, harmony, teamwork, listen, and respect. So you just touched on something that a lot of people have. Um, I think several you know leaders have a problem with. You have these core values. You try to operationalize them. You would love continuity, but then you have to hold people accountable. And that's where I think a lot of people have a problem. How do you hold your staff accountable? Well, first of all, if you're hiring the right people that have high expectations, they hold them they hold themselves more accountable than anybody else mm-hmm. because they want to deliver. They don't want to disappoint. Sometimes we all have to make changes if things aren't going well. That shouldn't really be a surprise if you're having to make a change. Should be communication going along all the way through. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I found over the years is. People want to do a great job. Uh, I don't. I don't know if I've ever found anybody that didn't want to do a great job. So our our role is to try to help them um, continue to get better. And if things aren't working out, then at some point you have to make a change. Does your company have a clear vision? Do you have the right people in the right seats? Are you consistently getting the results you want and enjoying the journey? If not, consider talking to my friend and colleague, Brandon Blell, about implementing EOS, the Entrepreneurial Operating System. EOS is a simple system used by more than 190,000 companies around the world to clarify, simplify, and achieve their vision. Brandon is a professional EOS implementer here in Charlotte who is 
passionate about helping leaders like you get better results and live better lives. Get in touch with her at eosworldwide.com backslash Brandon dash Blell. That's B-L-E-L-L or connect with her on LinkedIn to learn more and schedule a free 90 minute meeting. If you are looking for a commercial roofer, you got to call Catamount Roofing first. They are experts in the commercial roofing space serving North and South Carolina. The team at Catamount specialize in commercial, industrial, medical, and institutional roofing. They will care for your roofing investment every step of the way, from design and installation to maintenance throughout its life to ensure maximized watertight service. Solutions through perseverance. Catamount Roofing. They work to make your roof last longer. Get in touch today at catamountroofing.us. That's catamountroofing.us. So you're at the Panthers 2016 Super Bowl. I heard this. Mr. Richardson um, invited every member of the organization and a guest to the Super Bowl and he paid for airfare and hotel. Is that accurate? No, we took everybody in their entire family. Entire family. Entire family. Yeah. So if I worked for Mr. Richardson and I had five kids, the whole crew would go? Whole crew went. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that had to be a number, right? I mean, yeah. uh, what, I don't know if you know the number. I'm sure you do if you care to share. What did that cost them? It, it was expensive. But that's his value system. The value system is... Everybody made a Super Bowl possible. So right. everybody was working to get to the ultimate prize, which is the Super Bowl. That was such a unique time for so many years, really, as we were getting to that point. Uh, use the word harmony. Uh, the harmony in the whole building, football side, business side, everybody was in sync. And any great team does. We had incredible leaders on that team. I mean, you can just go through the who's who uh, uh-huh. names and it goes from, you know, Luke, Luke Keekley, Thomas Davis, uh, Greg Olson, Jonathan Stewart, Ryan Khalil, Cam. Uh, the list just goes on and on. And it was yeah. it was great chemistry. They had fun. They worked hard. You got to have some fun. And that yeah. team had a lot of fun, but they knew. They, they were always ready to play. I, I was, that was, and I will say this, Matt, about the pros. The thing I was most nervous about uh, going from college to pros, we had had some pros at TCU uh, that I liked a lot, but I didn't really know what it would be like to, uh, on a day-to-day basis with the pro athlete. And mm-hmm. I got to say to, uh, it was, I love the pro athlete. Um, you think about it, they're the best in the world at what they do. They don't stay there in a football situation if they don't get along with people. I'm talking generally. Um, they're highly motivated. Um, they're hard workers. You don't stay if you're not continuing to get better. We just had a, we had a special group of players. Uh, I, I really love the pro experience. So I loved all my experiences, actually. So the next year you resigned, though. Why Why? Why resign a year after the that Super Bowl? Was in, that was in 17. And it, I'd been there for eight years. And really, it was it, it was time. I wanted to get back to the college space, kind of to the roots from where I um, 
had been. I was primarily, as you know, my whole career is pretty much uh, college, except for those eight years and the years in high school. And so I was, we went to the beach. I was going to do a little consulting. And I was really excited about teaching at the University of South Carolina in the sport management program. It's the largest program in the country. They have a stellar reputation. I already knew some of the professors there from who had worked with us on some projects at the Panthers. And to have the opportunity to give back and stay current, keep mm-hmm. young, around young people, that was a real blessing for me. And uh, the Charlotte Sports Foundation came about in 2019. I was on the board when I was with the Panthers. The executive director who did a fabulous job, Will Will Webb, uh, had Parkinson's. So they mm-hmm. he stepped down and they asked me if I'd be interested in doing that. And uh, we've got such a, a great young staff. It's been a lot of fun for me to be working with uh, the energy and the talent that we have here at the Charlotte Sports Foundation. There's about three topics I definitely want to touch on. You've been in at the high school level, the college level, the pro level in very political environments. And you don't seem to be a political like I wouldn't label you a political guy. Right. But you've dealt with politics. And I think sometimes what what gets people is their lack of political awareness, lack of political savvy. How do you. And managing change, like, and that's where I screwed up. Like, I I screwed that up. Managing change, political um, savvy, uh, lacked it, and it cost me. So you go to these different roles, Wofford, Southern Conference, uh, TCU, Panthers, big changes. Yeah. How do you understand and navigate the political landmines? And how do you manage change. Um, and, and my guess is it's not the same every place you go into. Um, talk, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's not the same uh, everywhere you go. I'll take you back to 1993, uh, a really uh, influential summer for me. Uh, I had the chance, uh, again, Joe Lassane, the president of Wofford, who was a great encourager, great nurturer. Uh, he inc- he wanted me to go to this uh, high-intense program at Harvard called uh, uh, IEM program. So it was a five-week program, six days a week. Uh, Roger Milliken, who was on our board, uh, funded it, so I'm thankful for that. I really didn't want to go. There's not a large staff at Wofford, uh, the job at hand does not stop during those five weeks. That's right. There wasn't the kind of ease of communications in 93 that there is today. And so I really wasn't all that excited about going. But I had two children at home that were middle school. And, you know, the job of an AD, you're, yeah. it's, it's all the time. And so here I was going to take five weeks out to go to this program. It was life-changing in a lot of ways. We did case studies. That's the way they teach there, as you yep. know. Mm-hmm. And we had we used this book that I still use in some of my, in my classes today. It's called uh, Reframing Organizations by Bowman and Deal. And in the book, it talks about every situation 
four lenses, four frames come into play. The Repeat the name of that book, please, Danny. Uh, Reframing Organizations by Bowman and Deal. And it says that these four, you look through these four lenses on every single thing that you do. The structure, the human resource frame, which, of course, is the people. Mm-hmm. The political frame, which you just touched on, the mm-hmm. politics, and then the symbolic frame, which is perception and so forth. All four of those frames come into play in every situation. And generally speaking, when something blows up, one of the frames gets missed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we use that on all the case studies that we uh, went through at Harvard during that time period. And it was it was it was it was a wonderful learning experience for me, and I have to also go back to so many outstanding bosses that I had over the years, um, watching and learning how they handled a different situation was invaluable for me. That president, when he encouraged you to take that class at Harvard. Uh, was giving you a gift and you, you know, didn't like it. I remember when I was a head coach in North Carolina, Dick Bedore encouraged me to take a class at Col- uh, Center for Creative Leadership in Greensboro. And I too felt like I didn't have time for it. And I didn't take it. And I took those classes subsequent to my forced resignation. And I was sitting in a class at Wharton. <laughs> it was just a week long class on, a, and this class was on emotional intelligence. And I'm sitting in the class and I said, oh my God, I would have taken this class before I was a head coach, I might still be the head coach. It's interesting how things play out. But I I will say this, in a lot of ways, things play out in certain ways. And then however they play out, uh, what you've done a marvelous job of is moving forward from it. Well, thank you. And, uh, you know, uh, from your pain comes your passion and that my passion became leadership. And that's why I have this podcast rebound from pain to passion. Um, And, uh, you know, I look at you and, you know, you and I have gotten to know each other ever since you were the commissioner of the Southern Conference. And I was coaching at Davidson at the time and then followed your career. And, you know, you are a lifelong learner because you've said several times you said the, the words get better. You've said it at least three times, maybe four, get better, get better, get better. How are you getting better today? You know, when people arrive and I've, I'm, as an executive coach, sometimes I'll get a response. Well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm 60. I've, I've, I've done everything. I'm kind of like, almost like I know it all. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, man, you know, Roy Williams would say you might be on the right track, but if you're standing still, you're going to get run over. You know, you teach at, you're still working as a professor at USC. Um, you are a coach and a teacher at heart. I mean, that's how you started as a high school coach. I mean, I love it. And so how do you continue to learn today? What, what are you, what books are you reading? Who are you talking to? Who's in your personal board of directors? Uh, how are you continuing to grow today? Well, first of all, again, blessed to go to Wofford as an undergrad a liberal arts college. I was a math major, uh, taught geometry in high school. And by the way, I could have been happy being a high school coach, father, coach the father, son, grandson. I could have been happy doing that. I don't mm-hmm. think anybody makes more of a difference in young people's lives than a high school coach. That's and, right. You know, and things just happen. Uh, it wasn't, you were good. No, no, here's the deal. And you won't, you would admit it. Roy Williams is a high school coach. 
and he's in the Hall of Fame, Naismith Hall of Fame. Uh, Bob McKillop, uh, who you know very well, the legendary coach at Davidson College, was my high school coach. Yeah. Um, and, and then Dick Seitler was my high school coach. You know, those people taught me they make the biggest impact. You know, we listen to our high school coaches more than we listen to our parents, right? Really? Yeah. And, and because, you know, we respect them so much more. That's terrible. It came out of my mouth like that. But, you know, uh, and plus you have more leverage, you know, That's right. for the most part. Like if I'm not, if I'm not doing what you want, I'm not going to get to play. And so uh, you wanted to please your high school coach. And if you respected him or her, that relationship, man, I mean, Bob gets the job at Davidson, hires me. And, you know, I'm there for three years. Then Roy Williams hires me and I'm there for seven years at Kansas. So, you know, you are dead on. That relationship is powerful. Um, and so. But and you, I was blessed to have uh, every coach I've ever had has been uh, outstanding. So I haven't had the horror stories with bosses or coaches. I've had great ones all along. But back at my uh it, it, what, what was instilled in the students in the, un, in the undergrad at Wofford with the liberal arts and the math major was this focus on continuing to learn your whole lifetime. We're mm-hmm. here to teach you how to learn, how to write, how to think. And there's a major emphasis on just lifetime uh, learning. Plus, it's, if you don't stay current, you're really in a, in a bad place. So you do that by paying attention, listening, being alert, reading. You mentioned about books. Uh, I just mentioned one about reframing organizations. Um, I usually like, I love to read biographies. Biographies are really my favorite, uh, favorite books. Um, just to learn about people, what makes them tick. Again, what, people do it in different part? ways. What, what biography did you read that you could share with us that made an impact on you? Well, I like reading all the, uh, the I, I read a lot of the coaches' biographies. So I've read uh, Dean Smith's biography, Coach K's biography, so forth. Whoa, 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 whoa. wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. That, there's a problem here. <laughs> Dean Smith, you mentioned Dean Smith and Coach K. Uh, you know, I'm kidding, as a Carolina guy. Um, but you, what you find, I'm sure, they're very similar tenants, even though they could go at it differently, uh, different styles, but yet core to the core. Um, they have similar core values, like Coach Smith was play hard, play smart, play together. Right. That could be Coach K's core values as well. Very yeah, similar, but different. Couldn't agree more. And they did it, and that's my point. You, you, you also have to do it in your own way, in your own style. And People will respond to that if you're authentic, mm-hmm. uh, even if you're quirky and do it uh, again. You, you just got to be who you are the most. Uh, uh, if I had to reflect back on most young coaches, myself included, we try to be sometimes we try to be somebody that we really admire rather than taking and learning from those that we really admire and then putting it on our own style. Uh, it takes a t- it takes some time to be confident in who you are and to be in who you're being your own style. Amen. Um, you 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 teach 
So you're dealing with the current, you know, Generation Zs, I guess, which is like 26 and under. Uh, people, you know, a lot of people complain about the millennials and work ethic entitlements. You see them up close. You work with them. You have some on your staff. What's the future look like in terms of uh, the generation, uh, Generation Z, and, and how they can make an impact on the world? Well, don't forget, they were complaining about us when we came through, too. So, no, no, yeah. no, they weren't. Come on, Danny. Yeah, so they were complaining about us, and uh, oh, I find them to be bright, talented. They're in a different world with all the things at their fingertips today with the social media, but they're great. Uh, they're energetic. Uh, they bring fresh ideas. We have a saying around our office that best idea wins. It doesn't matter where it comes from, whether it comes from an intern or whether it comes from anybody else. And uh, we can have dialogue in our office and disagree on things. I, I love uh, when we have disagreements. It's one of the problems we have in our country right now. We can't have discourse because everybody lines up on one end of the spectrum or the other. Uh, it's fun to hash out ideas. And at the end of the day, if there's decision has to be made, I, you know, I'll make the decision, but I love the discourse that comes along with it. And you get a lot of fresh ideas that way. I love it. I love it. You got to welcome, uh, uh, create a safe environment, mind for the truth, and then, and then align. The future of college athletics, you are very close to it, obviously still. NIL, name, image, and likeness, transfer portal, conference alignment. <laughs> what, what a mess. Uh, what, what's, what is college athletics going to look like in 10 years? Well, it's a full plate uh, that's on every AD's uh, agenda item now. Um, but let me take you back, Matt. It, it's some, sometimes things, what goes around comes around. I take you back to 1921 when the Southern Conference was formed. It basically started with 13. They added six the next year. They had 19 teams when they really started playing in 22. 1932, I think they were somewhere around 23. It was basically the core SEC schools and the core ACC schools. You even had a few small colleges in there like WNL and VMI and uh, Sewanee. Then in 32, the SEC broke away. And in 1953, the ACC broke away. So the Southern Conference birthed the two power conferences in the South and Southeast. So it was a conference at 23 at one time. And now it looks like we're moving back towards more mega type conferences. And at some point, probably not in my lifetime, it'll, it'll also go the other direction because invariably, if you've got 20 schools in a conference at some point, 30 years, whenever down the road, 10 will say, you know what, we're carrying all the heavy load here and we really ought to break off and do our own thing. Mm -hmm. So in some ways we see a cycle uh, over a hundred year period. I'd go back to that same kind of history. If you go read the 1929 Carnegie report on higher education in our sports in America, it's fascinating. What, what was that again? The Carnegie report 
I think it was called uh, America American College Athletics. But anyways, the Carnegie report, they did this real intense study of college athletics in America in 1929. <laughs> it doesn't read much different than today, How about that? if you read it. Same kind of issues, primarily from a from a uh, you know the the booster side, which makes college sports so much different than any other enterprise. Just take name, image, and likeness. What I observed at the pro level, and these are the best in the world, on an NFL roster of say fifty three players, significant NIL deals, name, image, and likeness, sponsorship, whatever you mm-hmm. want to call it. Those weren't limited to five or six in a significant way. So that's really pure name, image, and likeness. Right. You could say the same about name, image, and likeness from an Olympic standpoint. The 16th best pole vaulter in the world is fantastic, 16th best in the world. But they're not likely to have a large name, image, and likeness relationship, right. whereas in some of the college programs in the country, they'll have all 16 offensive linemen getting X number of dollars. Well, that's not really a name, image, and likeness play. That's more of a collectives kind of play. But having said all that, if you go back to the Carnegie Report of 1929, they were dealing with similar issues. <laughs> well, Danny, I could go on and on. I love talking sports with you. You have such a wealth uh, background and you are really a basketball guy dressed up as a football guy, I think over the years. Uh, but, uh, you know, just love your insight. You continue to teach and coach um, not only your, 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 your team at uh, the uh, Charlotte Sports Foundation, but at, at USC, uh, University um South Carolina. Thank you so much for being with us today. Well, and I might add one thing on the leadership side, uh, because I I don't really think about, talk about leadership a lot. What I've really been my whole career, I couldn't couldn't score, so I was a point guard. And, but what I loved about the point guard is you put the ball in other people's hands in the best place they can be to help them score. You play defense, you're a great teammate, And so in some ways, uh, I guess I've been trying to be a point guard for a long, long time, getting the ball in the right people's hands. Well, you've done that for a long time, Danny, and uh, done it with a smile on your face, your your demeanor, your classy, uh, your, you know, I appreciate all you do for me personally. And again, thank you for coming on the Rebound podcast. Thank you for having me. Enjoyed it, Matt. Leadership is a learned behavior. You're a leader, whether you're a parent, a coach, a business owner, or a friend. We all lead in some way, shape, or form. Thanks for listening. I welcome any and all feedback. You can reach me at dartycoaching.com. Hey, 